Welcome to Make Work Fun, the podcast exploring the fun side of the creator economy. We're the show all about business with a bit less of the business. I'm Ben Bradbury. Friends, fellow creators, operators, everyone in between, welcome back to another episode of Make Work Fun, brought to you by Workweek. I'm Ben, and today we're interviewing another one of our creators, Joe Sweeney. Joe is a real living, breathing case study in the power of curiosity. Now, the word curiosity gets banded around a lot, but I've just sat through an hour or so interview with him, and let me tell you, this guy can connect the dots between different industries at a freakish rate. He actually said to me that he's most excited when he talks to founders on his podcast, Just Raised, about ideas or topics that he knows nothing about. He's this infinitely curious guy, and what he does on on this episode is show how he brings those pieces of curiosity together to connect the dots that most people miss. Because that, I think, is the real value that you get out of being a creator, is you're so deep in the maze of your industry that you can connect these dots and see these threads that most people miss, and then you can talk about them and create a lot of value in the content you create. So Joe walks us through how he does this with his newsletter. Before recording this, he just spent six hours bulldozing his topic on the newsletter. He's really very precise with with going through that, and it's inspiring to watch, honestly, watching him grow. So it was a super fun interview. Um, I'd love to hear what you think. You can reach me on Twitter at BenBradbury underscore, or you can email me, Ben at WorkWeek.com. Would love to hear your feedback. Would love to connect with you. And uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe. I will see you soon. Joe, what is going on? Welcome to Make Work Fun. Hey, Ben. It is great to see you. And it's great to be interviewed by you. I know we see each other a lot, but not getting to do this. So this is fun. I get to see you in your element. <laughs> yeah, you see the other side of the table. Well, dude, I'm excited for the interview. And what, we, what we've been doing with this, this series is really getting to understand a day in the life of a creator and what that looks like for you working here at Workweek and then the media business that you're building with Just Raise. So I'd love for you to start by taking 60 seconds or so just to introduce who you are and what you're creating today. Yeah, I'm Joe Sweeney. I work on Just Raise, which is a media brand that covers tech and startups in kind of all its facets. I'm very much a generalist. And I was the first creator that Adam hired on to Workweek and have been here since it was Adam and Becca, the co-founders, and have watched it scale from there. So yeah, Just Raise focuses mostly on early stage tech companies. I spent a lot of time interviewing startup founders who have just raised a seed or a series A or a series B, anywhere from like 10 to $90 million, who are building everything from crypto and Web3 companies focused on NFTs to electric vehicles and the energy grid to rocket companies and fintech, of course, so many, so many fintech companies and everything (laughs) in between. So D2C media, of course, with Workweek and others. So yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. So it's interesting hearing you say that there's so many different sectors that you focus on. It's a real broad array. And I think something that sets you apart from a lot of other creators, other creators will specialize on one particular thing, but you're really someone who's there to connect the dots between other disciplines. Why have you decided to have such a broad focus with your content as opposed to a narrow one? You know, I've been resisting the push to be specialized pretty much my entire career. Uh, My undergrad was biomedical engineering, but I did not go become a biomedical engineer. 
the options I felt like were kind of go into your PhD, in which case I'd probably still be in school right now, or go work for a big medical device or drug company. And those were both just too slow, I felt like for me. And I always wanted to work with startups. So I went and got a job at a spin out of Lux Capital, Lux Research, profiling startups, and then ended up at Silicon Valley Bank and went from there. And at Silicon Valley Bank, it was all about finance and fintech, but also a whole ton of different hard tech companies because I was in Boston and engineers at MIT and Harvard were building biotech companies. It's like the Silicon Valley of biotech in Cambridge, but also everything else, fintech, a lot of SaaS. So, you know, whenever I think about really diving into a very specific space, whether it's biology or maybe fintech or even SaaS companies, it feels kind of limiting. So, I really enjoy getting to bounce between all these different sectors. And every time I talk to a company or a founder, it's someone who's been building in in this space for years. It's their sole goal to get this company off the ground. And they can just talk and talk about this really interesting sector. Like I just talked to someone about carbon credits and someone else about an NFT marketplace. And they're drastically different. They're also similar in a lot of ways. Both are actually marketplaces and both are dealing with intangible products. And you find that across a whole ton of different things, whether it's a delivery startup or a direct-to-consumer retail startup. So yeah, I really like covering all of the different topics and I enjoy pulling out some of the theory that connects all of these companies, but also getting to dive into so many different spaces and operating models. You said something really interesting at the end there, which is unpacking or finding the thread that connects all of these different companies or the theories that connect these companies. And it does suggest that there's these different parallel tracks that run through these different industries. And what you're able to do is connect the dots on them. I'd love to dig into your process for a second. How do you go about connecting the dots between these different industries? Is that something that happens instinctively when you're listening? Is that something that's more data-driven with your research? What does the light bulb moment look like for Joe when you realize, oh, these two industries, they talk to each other? VCs are often made fun of these days for their podcasts and their blogs and talking about things like that. But there is a huge amount of kind of startup theory out there uh, where you can hear Toby Luca, the founder of Shopify, or Bill Gurley from Benchmark talk for hours and read a lot of their work. So I think a lot of when I talk to companies, a lot of what I'm thinking about comes from there and seeing companies that have succeeded or failed and kind of what spurs those companies on. So maybe it's customer acquisition costs, right? If you're looking at a neobank in the fintech world, well, no one recommends their bank to other people. So it costs a lot for those companies to bring on new customers and they have to spend a ton on marketing. But then sometimes you see a company like Propel, which focuses on Americans on food stamps. And that company has brought on a ridiculous amount of users with absolutely zero marketing spend because they just provide a really good product and people are referring that. So you're looking for kind of connections like that, that I often pull from this kind of huge base of knowledge and literature that's already out there that I've spent a ton of time just reading and listening to because it's what I like to do. So it seems like a combination of consuming and having this voracious information diet 
So you have a baseline context and then using that context to dive into a company and seeing the similarities or seeing seeing the differences. I think the cool thing as well about what you're doing there is you're unpacking the principle behind it. So this company has a really interesting business model which affects the user growth like this or the neobank. No one's recommending their bank accounts to each other. Therefore, they have to spend a ton on marketing. So there's the that you're peeling the layer back each time. And I think that's what's really valuable about being a creator is you can add your opinion, you can add the reason why to the news or to the analysis that 99% of people don't think to go any deeper on. Yeah, exactly. And they're not really my ideas, right? Like I didn't come up with customer acquisition costs or like the fact that neobanks have to spend a ton of money on it. But when I worked at Silicon Valley Bank, I walked around and I looked at billboards and they all said Brex on them. And I've heard the founder of Brex on podcasts talk about buying every billboard in San Francisco as like an alternative marketing strategy. And it worked. And I think you combine that with then going and talking to new companies that are in that same space and being surprised by some of the things they're saying. If I do it right, yeah, I think I pull out the principle, but it's all about kind of connecting those dots over time, which comes from kind of the fact that I just love listening to all this stuff and hearing about it and learning about it. And also I love talking to these companies who are super deep in like, agriculture and ag tech and can tell me about how farming works in the U.S. on at an incredibly detailed layer that you can't really get anywhere else. Something I'm consistently impressed by by you is how much of a generalist you are. You have a really thorough understanding on all these disconnected, well, now I know they're connected, industries. You've got ag tech, you've got space, you've got hard tech, you've got Web3, you've got gaming. And Joe Sweeney dabbles in all of them. I think part of that, to your credit, is how good of an interviewer you are. How does one conduct a really curious interview? So, let's say you're going into a new industry that you, let's say eyewear, right? I've got a pair of Warby Parkers here. Let's say you want to understand the eyewear industry and you're interviewing the COO of Warby Parker. How do you go about mining that guest for information? First, you want to go in with kind of a framework of the conversation, which for me is informed by one, the questions that you as Workweek's podcast leader have helped me develop and figure out how to put together a compelling interview, but also by kind of my background. So you mentioned Warby Parker and like the first thing I think I think of is the retail model and the direct to consumer where they actually sell most of the stuff online and ship it to you. But they're also retail where they have these storefronts and how they're using retail as effectively like a marketing channel um, because they could do pretty much all of this stuff online. So you think about kind of the base of where they fit into and then like the other companies in the space like Bonobos and Glossier and other companies with physical spaces and uh, knowing that all those companies peak out at like a billion dollar valuation. Those are all interesting like ground level stuff and I'd obviously do a ton of background research. But then it's about asking questions and discovering things that actually pique my interest. So there's very basic ones that fall into the structure of the interview, like how did you get started with Warby Parker? Why did you want to start a glasses company of all things? But then from there, there might be some really interesting piece. Like, you know, we actually found that the market was really open to this. Optometrists are like old and dated and blah, blah. And I'd be like, that's interesting. Why are optometrists old and dated? 
and, you know, kind of dive into the market further. And like, who else has tried this? And like, how does this play into some of the other trends like uh, Roman and other things that are trying to give medication online? There's a big push into that in healthcare and pills kind of on TikTok and stuff like that that's being advertised for by startups. But anyway, I think it starts with that framework that's created by your actual typical questions, your base of knowledge, and then diving into specific things that you're generally curious about. And by doing that, you get really good fluid answers. And then the last thing I'd say is you helped me put in a lightning round into my interviews, which I wasn't sure I wanted to do at first, but just by saying it, you get people talking in a very punchy way and you dive between a whole bunch of different topics and it makes it super interesting. So highly recommend a lightning round to anybody who's doing interviews. Oh, that's cool. I love hearing that that's worked. Yeah, it does seem like a real mix of preparation and curiosity. The more that you research, the more your brain's going to be primed on having a good interview and you'll spot the opportunities that you otherwise would have missed. It was also cool to hear you do in real time, just say, hey, well, you know, I put Warby Parker in the same bucket of consumer facing or direct consumer companies like Glossier, like Bonobos, who have peaked out at a billion dollar valuation. So that gives you the the box that you're playing in. So you might say, okay, well, on your path to getting to a mil- uh, billion dollars or around that benchmark, how are you going to to do that? And that then informs your your question as well. For Warby Parker, the question would be like, what do you do now? Because you look at Away, you look at Bonobos, they all kind of hit that billion to billion and a half dollar valuation, and they haven't really gone up. And a couple of them have IPO'd, but the stock has just gone sideways or down a little bit. And, uh, you know, Allbirds is half that. And that is the big question in the direct-to-consumer space is like, how do you, where do they go? Do they become some giant conglomerate that's like the unilever of the future? Or is there some roll-up play? I don't really know. So I wonder what happens to these businesses when they hit a certain scale where like how many suitcases can you sell? But that's a different question for the CEO of Warby Parker one day. (laughs) One day, one day when we get him on Just Raised in season six or seven. Um, It's cool just hearing you speak because you're clearly so enthused and curious about such a range of companies. How do you stay so motivated to tackle such a broad range of topics. I mean, we were chatting just before this and you were saying you've spent six hours a day going deep on a newsletter. That's a lot of time just to focus on one company. So how do you keep yourself motivated knowing that consistency is the name of the game for creators? Yeah, well, I should have broken that six hours up into a few different hours. And if I wasn't doing it all at once, I might have been a little bit more efficient. But uh (laughs) In general, I find getting motivated to start and get deep into an area can be tough because when you're not like actively working on it, it's not that interesting. But once you get into the flow of writing, of understanding something, sometimes I'll do research on a company before I talk to them for a podcast and five or 10 minutes in, you're like, oh, I know that investor. And you're like, oh, I know these founders came from that company. And it's like, oh, they're working on this data thing with Web3 that is tied to this broader idea of how to use data more generally. And that's where it starts to get exciting because then I was thinking about the example of Delphia, which is a company I recently interviewed. And when I first started looking at them, I was like, so it's a crypto company that's essentially a fintech. It's like you pay them and then they go and invest your money for you. And 
I didn't really get that, why you would invest with them as opposed to Robinhood or Passive Investment or something like that. But as I got into it, I realized that what they were actually doing was they're paying users for data. And people have tried that, like Brave Browser tried that, and it doesn't work because your, your data on you as a person is only worth like $5 a year. So it's just not mm. worth anything to have a browser that's not Google when Google has like this killer product that's way better than any competitor, like a Brave browser. You might as well just use the good one instead of getting $5 for <laughs> your data over the course of the year. Yeah. But what Delphi is trying to do is actually aggregate like 5 million people's data and all of their data, like everything they do on their phone, where they move, where they go. And then by doing all of that, they will then have data on like whether or not Netflix's stock is going to go up or down next quarter, because they will know before anyone else how many people are canceling their Netflix subscriptions. And that's really interesting. And they'll know like what cities are hot because which people are moving to them, like what apps people are actually spending time on. Like Be Real is this new social app that's really hot right now. It's number one in the app store. And I don't really think it's going to do that well. But the main question is like, okay, how much time do people actually spend in it? And if you're a VC, you can kind of go look and figure out like, okay, how much time they spend there. But if you're Delphia and you just have all of this data on 5 million Americans, well, then maybe you actually know on average how much time people are spending on Be Real, And that gives you this super interesting data set. So I think it's all about finding places where, again, it becomes interesting and then you dive really deep. And I was surprised by how many topics you can kind of dive into and how much is there. But initially it was interviewing founders and now it's interviewing founders and then diving deeper for newsletters on a couple of different founders that put together a topic, things like that. It really, hearing you speak, is really a testament to the power of curiosity. Not necessarily trying to be the master of one thing, but be a very open Swiss army knife and saying, hey, I'm going to, this thing is kind of intriguing. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Oh, that reminds me of that. And then connecting connecting all these dots. Um, to your credit, I think you're, you're, you're very good at that. And that to me is really what a creator can do. Chris Dixon wrote a really interesting piece a few years ago called The Idea Maze. And he said that the the founders who succeed, and I think this applies to creators as well, they've built this idea maze of their industry in their heads. And he sees that as, this as this very complex labyrinth of all these dead ends and traps where companies failed and companies who took this really elaborate path to succeed and the trends that powered them, the headwinds that got in their way. It's this really elaborate map that you can only build when you've had years and years of experience in the maze. And that's the advantage, I think, of being a creator. And what you're showing with Just Raised is you're in the maze with all of these different founders. And so because you've spent so much time traversing those walkways, you're able to connect the dots and see, oh, Warby Parker, I can connect that to Bonobos, to Glossier, to all these other companies way more instinctively than 99% of people can. I love that metaphor and I love the idea of the idea maze because you do see it all the time. You see these companies that start in one thing or start before you really get to know them well in something totally different. Like Slack was a gaming company, TinySpec, and then TinySpec, the game absolutely failed, but they built this internal communication software 
to talk to each other. And that was Slack. And that yeah. became the product. It is the um, Slack. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you see stuff like that all the time. So I think it is, you know, this trial and error and just continuing to hammer at this brick wall, which is what founders really do, especially on the early stages before they really find product market fit. And a lot of times that can take a long time. But it's also one of the reasons big corporates fail so often at innovation is because they have this team that's like, all right, we're going to do this one thing. And then the one thing doesn't work out. But you have to have a small team that pivots and continues running and just keeps running at it over the course of a year, 18 months. At the time of recording this, Bloomberg has just announced their new creator program today. And I look at a company like that, they are the media company, but are they going to be able to move with the speed and agility of a smaller creative team? I'm not so sure. There's thousands and thousands of people there. Same with Facebook's creator program with LinkedIn. That's one of the the challenges I think they're they're really going to face. And to your point, that's the advantage that you have as, as a creator um, or working with a small team of creators is that agility. Now, switching gears for a second, something I was really curious to dig into are your sources of inspiration. So what have you consumed? So this could be reading, this could be listening, this can be people you've spoken to, because I know you interview a ton of founders. But when you think about the, the kind of information you've consumed over the last few years, what or who has had the most impact on the work that you do today? Yeah, so two of my favorite podcasts are Invest Like the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy and Acquired. And I feel like that those two podcasts, I've probably listened to all of their episodes at least once. And those two podcasts are like an MBA in startups and tech. There's a lot of room to run from those interviews, but they provide so much context. I mean, on the one hand, you have acquired, which is they effectively tell the story of a company from the founder or the founder's parents all the way through to where they are today. And then yeah. they break into like the today's financial analysis and then on the other hand, you have Invest Like the Best, where they're interviewing people like, you know, Toby Luca or Bill Gurley or uh, Chayton at Benchmark or really anyone you can think of today. Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz. It is pretty incredible the just sheer number of people they get on there. And it's twice a week and it's just top tier investors. And you combine that with kind of the history that Acquired provides on everything from like they just did an episode on Walmart, but SpaceX, Tesla, Zoom, they've done episodes with the founder of Zoom a few times. It just gives you this access into these conversations with top tier leaders that I don't think really happen anywhere else. I don't think you could find it on cable news or other places. People don't really have these types of candid conversations. So I think those two have been usually influential. Also Acquired, I wouldn't be doing a podcast if it wasn't for Acquired. In the middle of the pandemic, they started doing Zoom calls like everyone was doing in the pandemic. And it was with their community. And David at Acquired suggested that my idea that I had brought up that there should be an acquired for early stage companies who, you know, really need to hire and to market and to bring on customers. You know, if you did an acquired episode with their massive audience, but not on Berkshire Hathaway, where Warren Buffett's not exactly going to appreciate it, I imagine, but instead on an early stage company, like that would be huge for an early stage company. And you could help them hire, you could do marketing for them, you could do all sorts of things for an early stage company. And David at Acquired reached out to me, pulled my email off their email list, and 
suggested that I start it. And he, he set up a Zoom call with me, spent a couple hours with me. I was like, yeah, I guess I could start a podcast in the middle of the pandemic. And um, yeah, wow. suddenly I had all these killer founders saying yes to cold emails before I had a show. So that's awesome. But also to underscore, you saw the opportunity to build on an existing brand. And that's an opportunity I don't think enough creators think about. When I started my show, I thought, okay, what's how do I start this from the ground up? What's this new brand that I'm going to build? But actually, something I've learned about distribution is that you want to target one or two key nodes in your network and use them to get behind your content, advocate for it and share it. And I haven't heard before of this use case that you're talking about where you didn't partner with the acquired host for distribution, but you partnered with him for guest flow and brand equity. And there's, I think that's a really interesting opportunity for creators to think about, okay, what are the, if I'm starting new, what are the big opportunities in my space and how can I partner with those whales and develop their brands using my own sub brands so that we can build reputational capital together? Yeah, I haven't done enough of this since uh, I joined Workweek, probably because there are so many creators here. But talking to people in your space and cold emailing people, there's really no downside to cold emails ever. Because <laughs> if they don't come meet you, there's really no, they delete your email and they forget about it. But yeah, reaching out to people in your space, to bigger creators, to other people who have done this before, whether you're a founder or a creator is hugely helpful. Well, switching tack now, let's go to our second segment, which is called Making Work Fun. And that's where we get into the way that you work and the the pieces that you find most enjoyable. So first question for you, what part of your job lights you up the most? Probably talking to founders. That is a lot of fun. I found I really enjoy writing as well and kind of diving deep into some of these topics in a way that conversations sometimes don't let you do writing, you can really clarify your thoughts and it clarifies what you're thinking, where the gaps are and how you can fill them or how you can't if your argument's not any good. But talking to founders is a lot of fun because like I said, it's people from all different backgrounds. I've talked to people who've raised $180 million and they had never had a corporate job before that. Um, And I've talked to other people who are Harvard Business School to Stanford to a top VC firm and then are stepping out to do a company and kind of everyone in between. And yeah, there tends to be a lot of really interesting backgrounds, more than you'd think. And there's a lot of really different approaches to running businesses. Where do you have the most fun? Is that also talking to founders? Are there any other pieces of your work that you find exceptionally enjoyable? I would probably say that, you know, when I'm talking to somebody about a really interesting new space, especially something I know absolutely nothing about, like a media company or a space company. Uh, I talked to Peter Beck a while back, who's the CEO of Rocket Lab. And this guy like builds rockets and he started as just a random rocket scientist in New Zealand. And uh, he didn't have a billion dollars. He didn't have any funding. And he just was building rockets since he was in college. And they got bigger and bigger. And now they pave roads. And now they're like the largest rocket company in the world outside of SpaceX. Uh, And it's pretty awesome to just hear that story. And he talks about getting international law changed so that they can launch from New Zealand and 
own the rockets once they're still in space and all this other stuff. And that's just really cool to hear about. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, a lot of that is a lot of fun for sure. That's so inspiring to hear that just a random, not random, but a kind of run of the mill rocket scientist has been able to build the second most valuable rocket company in the world. Yeah, definitely a blueprint for, for us to potentially follow. I'm also curious about how you have a healthy work-life balance because you put out a ton of content. You're doing multiple podcasts a week. And when your podcast is live, you're doing a weekly newsletter, you're doing events. There's a lot for you to do. How do you make sure that you're having a healthy work-life balance when you're creating? So I live in Manhattan and I spend a lot of time with my friends. I go out a lot. A lot of my friends are kind of in the space, whether like work at VC firms or other startups or things like that. So you can squeeze a lot of drinks and lunches and things like that in that are ancillarily related. I think generally it's about really good calendar work. It's about making sure you block out when you're going to create content, how you're going to create content, when you're going to release it, all that type of stuff. Having a long pipeline so that you have things done weeks in advance. Now, especially with the pipeline, those are things that I drop the ball on. But I think that's probably the biggest piece is just making sure that you are creating on time. There's also in content creation, there's not really a a place to stop. I feel like in bigger companies, whether you're in a lot of other different roles, whether it's operations or things like that, the best operators are running at, you know, 100%, 100% of the time. But in creation, you really can see when things are created, when they're not, and things go out two or three times a week. So I think running on deadlines two or three or four times a week with two podcasts and two newsletters and a couple other things as well that go out you just got to keep up with those and you have to be really tightly scheduled if you want to have a work-life balance. Yeah. I mean, whether you're a creator or an operator, the discipline and the consistency I think is is key. And then being able to build systems that make that consistency easier over time, because something I believe about creators, and I think about this in my own show, is it's not about the single episode, it's about the body of work. So no one really over the long term cares about a specific episode of subject matter. I'm not at that point yet. But when I say to people, hey, I've done 120 episodes and counting, then people are like, oh, this guy's got some reps. He's put out some podcasts. That's the, the card that speaks for itself. I've got one last question for you today, Mr. Sweeney, and that is, if you're going to give a creator one piece of advice who is looking to launch, grow, or monetize their content, whether that's a social platform, a newsletter, a community, a podcast. What's the one thing that you're going to leave them with today? The biggest thing for creation is promotion. So we were just talking about how it's hard to release four times a week. But if you're releasing four times a week and you're not actively promoting it over a dozen different social channels, then are you really creating? Because people do hear it and they'll go back through your back catalog and it creates that body of work. But the promotion is kind of the most important piece. It's almost like a startup with distribution, right? You can have a killer product, but if you haven't put it in anyone's hands, that doesn't win. You also need a really killer distribution strategy. So I think building on social networks, figuring out how those work, posting often, that's something Workweek has helped me a lot with and is continuing to help me a lot with is 
scaling that distribution side. And then from there, monetization and things like that come. But distribution and talking to other people in your space who are further along than you, those two things will take you a really long way. And then the creation itself, that gets better. Just follow something you're really curious about that you really enjoy doing and people will hear how much you enjoy it and you'll attract uh, you'll attract people who like what you like. I love that. I hadn't heard the product and distribution analogy from zero to one applied to media. That's super cool. Appreciate you sharing that. Well, Joe, this has been real fun having you on the show. I've certainly gotten to understand your process a little bit more and actually a little bit humbled of how much you just clearly understand from all these different companies. It's really cool to see in the world. If people want to follow you, keep up with you online, where can they go? They can check out my Twitter at Joey Sweeney on Twitter, or they can follow my newsletter. Subscribe. It comes out Tuesdays and Thursdays. Tuesdays is news. Uh, Tuesdays and Fridays and Fridays is essays about all sorts of things. So, and that is just raised and you've got a podcast by the same name as well. Yep. All right, Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for tuning in. Keep the fun coming by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? It really helps us spread our message. We'll see you next time.